Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department podcast. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, graphic design, publishing, animation, and other creative fields about their work, the lessons they've learned, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, my guest is Vicki Wilden Labret, CEO and founder of The Bright Agency. For some illustrators who want an agent, the size of the agency matters. Some want a big agency with a wide reach. Others want a more boutique, focused experience. Among other topics, Vicki and I talk about the founding of The Bright Agency and what she thinks about the criticism that Bright is too big. She expounds the benefits of being less precious about what kind of illustrator you are. And Vicki answers questions from patrons of the podcast about portfolios, book banning, AI, and more. A small sound glitch I couldn't fix notwithstanding, I hope you enjoy our conversation. I listened to a couple of your podcasts and you are very nice in, in your sort of probing questions. I was quite impressed with how you sort of ask quite difficult conversations in a very non-combative way. Well, thanks, Vicky. That means a lot coming from you. <laughs> when was the last time you and I spoke? I think it was 2011 or 2012. And I don't even think we really corresponded via email between then and now. No, no. It's good to talk to you again. How's it been? It's been really good. And actually, that's probably one of the um, the downsides of growing an agency, actually, is I really miss the people that I connected with that sort of introduced the agency to and were really strong sort of relationships and, and clients. And we right. did some great work together. But in order to grow the agency, I had to give the people like James and agents after him right. the opportunity they don't want to have me up in their grill being like oh well I went to see Giuseppe and this is what he thinks and well I, I've just shown him this artist like you have to give people the space and the autonomy um and that kind of creative freedom to not get in their way sure but one thing I would say is what's really lovely is those relationships are like friends like you just oh, you do sure. just kick off where you were before you're absolutely right my connection to Bright started with Kirsten Hall, mm -hmm. and then after her, James Burns. And so I didn't really need to talk to you. Um, it would have been nice. But did I not work with you with Simon Schuster? We must have. I don't remember, but we had to have. And Because I, I used to go into Penguin Random House before you were there. They right. were a big client of mine. I'm trying to remember who was there. And so Kirsten when she joined took uh, the reason why she joined is I was getting old like god I was so young but I was <laughs> traveling to the states probably every six weeks right. in my early 20s that was super exciting like I'm off to New York um, and my sister was living at the time just outside of Boston and so I used to it was you know I'd fly to New York have meetings and take the train up see her for the weekend fly home and that sort of worked for about a good two years but, you know, it's just not sustainable. And so then I was looking for someone to sort of take over that American part, you know, and also you needed someone on the time zone. No one wanted to wait and no New Yorker wants to wait until, no. um, you know, for, right. for things. So I needed someone in the time zone. And um, so so I we definitely were working with Penguin Random House, mm -hmm. but you obviously joined there after. Right. I joined in 2011. Yeah. And right around that same time was when you and I, 
met at Soho House of all places. Because we were updating our website and Kirsten was like, Giuseppe, he's going to give us feedback. We need feedback. We need the client's right. perspective. And I think that she was like, he's going to tell us the truth. Like he's, this is what we need. We don't need someone saying like, oh, it's great. And it's okay. We want like the feedback. And she, she said you would give that. I might so have been a, a little critical of your little vocal, at the time. Um, but we wanted that. That was, you know, you, you don't want feedback. That's just the good, the good stuff. You want to yeah. know what, you know, how people are interacting with it. The one thing that frustrated me most about the website then, then, not now, but then, mm was that I just couldn't see the imagery clear enough for any illustrator. I'd visit their, their, their page on your site, and then I'd click on something, and the image would be really tiny. And that was the, I remember that was the biggest critique. The challenge of that was the smaller the image, the faster the website. So if yeah, you had a bigger image, the, the website slowed down. But that's right. all you know, changed now. I just want to say, I, I hope I wasn't a dick. I remember it was warm. We were outside on some rooftop bar or something, and you pulled out your laptop and we looked at the site together and I just hope I wasn't like a jerk about it. And if I was, I apologize. No, you no, no, not at all. Not, okay. not at all. And you weren't the only person we asked feedback for. So it was like, oh. it was, um, no, it was great. It was when you're building technology and we do so, I mean, so much, it's so funny actually, because I got on how I got onto this, um, the podcast recording. I don't think I, would have sounded that tech savvy but we are <laughs> so committed and you know right. we're always trying to improve that kind of streamlined operations it's one of those things but like housekeeping it's never finished it's you're always improving it never on your laurels on it but having a right. you know you see it so much you have no idea sometimes how a client would be like oh well i i do this mm -hmm. like one of the things we had around that time i think you no know, it was after that was clients being like well when I look at an artist, I kind of like spider look at them. So I'm like, I look at blogs, I look at their Instagram, I look at the agent's page, I, you know, look at Nielsen Scanner, I look at their, you know, you kind of like, so we were trying on our website is to create a, an artist page where you could access everything. You can get to the Instagram, you can get to their blog, you can see all of their awards, you can read their book reviews, you can right. do it all on, on one page and to just really help clients be able to view that artist effectively rather than having to like jump off and, mm -hmm. and things. Um, by the way, happy 20th anniversary. I know. Well, we, do you know what? It's a bit of an exclusive for you. We're not really acknowledging 20 because we're going to go big for 21. Ah, uh, I see. So I keep getting linked in like, wow, I can't believe you're 20. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. They must think we're being really cool about it. But right. we've got, we've got big plans for next next year right you're not legally able to drink yet well at least yeah, here in the united yeah, states we're gonna do the whole full you know we're we're fully fully adult next yeah fully adult yeah. yeah how many agents does bright employ there is over 50 people at bright in our u.s office there's now 14 in agents wise there is 21 20 okay. i knew you'd ask that question actually of how many agents we have you know because we are a big agency you know um, exactly where i'm going with this line of questions yeah i know where you're going with this uh -huh. so there's two types of agents there's managing agents right. so they have a list of artists and they ha probably have like 30 to 35 and some of those artists are so established you're acting more of gatekeeper than you are promoter and your job is slightly different. You're much more about driving the discoverability of the books, making sure the publication dates are spread out, making sure 
that there is the right noise around the publication? Have they been up for the certain awards? If they are up for the awards, are we maximizing the opportunity and optimizing that 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 comes with it? And sure. you know, we've always said at Bright that book sales matter. They really matter to the artist and they really matter to the publisher and they matter to us. Mm-hmm. So as a managing agent, you are it's a slightly different role than an illustration agent, which is um, much more client focused in a specific area. So we have an agent that is just doing graphic novels and, and fiction. So every artist at Bright has a principal agent that they work with, like that's their agent. Got it. But if you have a client that's looking for something specific, it, we kind of call it internal trading and an agent will share it with the other agents. And right. most artists do transfer to other people's lists and opportunities. So if I, let's say I'm an illustrator represented by Bright, for a few years now, I've been working in the children's book area. And then one day I wake up and decide, you know, I actually want to do some licensing. A hundred percent. So like Bright sort of works to a method. And I think my motivation of how I began into all of this is making things happen, being creative, seeing opportunities. And one question I often get asked is like, did you plan for all of this? Was this like a business plan? And it, it, the way Bright has grown really wasn't planned. It, it's we have just been complete opportunists to what's opportunities are out there. So, and also we've been very good at optimizing the challenges. So, if you are a children's picture book illustrator and you're new, you might want to make sure your new debut book doesn't cannibalize itself and has the proper space around it to be published with space either side of it. So you haven't got your second book coming out um, and sort of disrupting that noise of like of of focus. But equally, you're a new artist and you want to get started and you want to be working and you probably can't afford to live off the advance of your first picture book so actually offering an artist a sort of a portfolio of work doing some you know fiction some black and white covers doing some greeting cards um, illustrating wrapping paper doing packaging is a really good thing how many illustrators does bright represent over 500 and how many agents did you say you had We've got about 21. Do you okay. know what? I knew you were going to, I was going to do all of the maths on this. But it's <laughs> 35. I know. Look, Vicky, artist. I know this question frustrates you. I know it does. It, no, it's but not it's a criticism you know, it's I it. often hear from illustrators mm. that I talk to on a day-to-day basis. And it's not something I, by the way, I, I want to be very transparent here. As an art yeah, director, no, no, I... I loved Bright because if I couldn't crack a certain illustration nut, on a project, I knew, I knew that if I go to Bright, you guys would help me. I knew that there would be an illustrator because of what you just said. I mean, maybe back then you weren't representing 500, but I knew that Bright was big enough that this problem would be solved. So as an art director, I never had an issue with how big you guys were. But now as an illustration mentor, someone who works with illustrators every day on this stuff, it's a criticism I often hear. Is Bright too big? Specifically, they'll say, well, big fish illustrators get more attention than small fish illustrators. That's just totally and utterly not true. All right. Tell me. We had a about God, when was it? About five years ago. I did this drawing of like a cauldron and it just 
it was like a, a bowl. And I was like, I could, what I could see happening is that artists, the ones that were often requested, had styles that were sort of on trend, right. um, were really easy to work with, that would just always reply to emails, pick up the phone. You could see that they were being picked at beyond any of the artists that might be a bit more challenging or um, hadn't had as much work or were less responsive on email or you could see, you know, from, and this was actually when I, because I went off maternity in 2019 mm-hmm. and I gave my list to Arabella and it, it's funny, I can talk about that, but I stopped agenting directly because I was on maternity leave, but it didn't mean I stopped looking at the website. It didn't mean I stopped looking at, you know everything that I could see and it was I started seeing how things operated so it was it was a really lovely time to just sort of have this sort of bird's eye view and I could see that people weren't deliberately doing it but it was just easy you were just reaching for the shallow sort of low-hanging fruit type thing and so what we did is we restructured the agency for agents to have just a specific list of artists that they are responsible to and they represent and a managing agent doesn't really have more than 30, 35 artists. And what we've seen is since 2019, the increase of jobs. We had 699, I only know this because someone was doing some statistic for me, different clients. Everything has sort of expanded since us being able to do this because the artists were getting individual care and attention by a specific agent. And then you still had the added um, benefit of the other agents that were working in specific markets. So we work so hard on that and we wouldn't work. There's no point us having an artist on our books if we are not working. So there is constant dialogue updated of the artists and we have various things like a slack channel and we have trello there is so many sort of like places where we are talking about the artists all the time so i just i just don't think that that is i I would really defend that point that people get lost at bright because they don't to be fair to you i do find it funny when I see or hear people say that some a company and specifically to this company, I mean, this company was founded by a woman who sold her car to help fund the founding of it, who happens to also be dyslexic, builds this company that helps illustrators have careers and pay mortgages and things like that. So the, you know, it's too big critique. It rubs me the wrong way sometimes. Do you know what? I'm now 43 years old. I set Bright Up when I was 22 and I spent a long time just sort of explaining. And and do you know what? I'm now old enough and and Bright is brilliant enough to just say, do you know why we're big? Because we're good. We're really good at what we do. We really have hired people that care. We have brilliant operations that we've worked so hard to keep evolving. Mm-hmm. When COVID happened and everyone had to go home, like, I mean, we were ready. We, it was loads. We were doing hybrid working. We've every single sort of mum that's gone off on maternity leave has come back. We've no one's come back on the same sort of hours and everything, but they've all come back. And we are a good organization and we do what we, we work to a method and, and we do it well. And I think that's why we've grown because more artists come and more work comes. Right. And we've grown, mm-hmm. Giuseppe, we have grown every single year since we started. And apparently that is a really 
like a very unusual thing. The illustration department, we're not 20 years old. Um, we've grown every single year since we started. So hopefully that keeps I'm going. I'm surprised I haven't been on before, Giuseppe. <laughs> actually invited me. Wait, what was that? Are you there? Yeah. Oh, I can hear you now. Okay. That was weird. Okay. Weird. When you started Bright, mm -hmm. did you know anything about being an agent, negotiating a contract, career planning with an illustrator? Was that any of that even familiar to you? Yes, because I had worked as an agent in an agency for a year before I set Bright up. Okay. I was a creative, so I'd, I'd done, um, all my A-levels were creative, and then I went on and did a foundation course, which you do all the different um, mediums, and then I I sort of set up my own design, doing a lot of my own freelance design, Right. and I really struggled with anyone inputting any direction onto my design, and um, went back to my university and was just like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, I've studied my whole life to be a designer and I just don't like working with other people. And I was winning work that I actually couldn't deliver because I was I was um, better at winning the work than I, you know, I would say I could do things. And then they'd like, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? And and I'd sort of come away being like, oh, I can't, but I know some that can. And indirectly, I was putting work to other people and farming it out. And then I went back to my university and was like, holy shit, what am I going to do with my life? And they said, why don't you be an agent? You'd be brilliant. That's yeah. sort of how it... Why the word bright? Was. That's quite a good one. We were going to be called Flamingo because um, I love pink and <laughs> I think they're very elegant. And I just thought well, I wanted to have a, a name with just one word. Right. So whether it was like glass or Flamingo or just, just one, one word. Anyway, so we were going to be flamingo and pink and when we googled it there was a lot of adult sites so we thought oh, we can't be that so it was a big u-turn and it was i was with some friends and we were talking and it was late at night and it was like oh who's got any more bright ideas and someone just said that and we all just went that's it bright and we we designed the logo and everything we were flamingo and then we couldn't be flamingo <laughs> so it felt very I negative i do wonder I do wonder if you stuck with Flamingo, what would have happened? You would have led exactly. you would have led a lot of people to a lot of interesting websites. <laughs> no, not no, no, not exactly. that Flamingo. This one. Mm -mm. I love the name Bright. I really do, and I, it's it's really served us well. Like, and you right. can do all sorts of things with it. And I love rebranding the logo. All the logos that you see over the years have all been me, my little creative moment of design. Hey. Nice. I'll redo the logo. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Bright's been described as, quote, a thriving international creative management agency around the globe, unquote. I like the around the globe part. Isn't that what international means? So I feel like it's a little redundant. But anyway, the point is made. In 2019, you guys launched a literary division led by Arabella. In 2022 or 2020, just a few years ago, you launched a motion graphics studio. So it's quite a holistic agency. You know, as you know, there are varying types of agencies, right? There's like the art rep. Maybe they don't represent you as a writer, but they'll represent you as an illustrator. Then you have the literary rep who has much more niche focus, obviously. 
publishing mostly, if not entirely, and that's for someone who wants to write. You guys are everything. Mm -hmm. You're a hybrid. How would you describe Bright? Would you say it's a, what is it, a, a creative agency? What What's the label or do you prefer not labeling it? I think it's for anyone that is a creative that wants to get on in life and they want to expand and, and grow and reach the their full potential. I'll tell you, with one thing about this whole turning 20 thing and turning 21, we did a lot of work on what we're going to, you know, how we're going to celebrate, acknowledge it. And what right. really surprised me was the founding principles that set Bright up is exactly what we are now, which is literally we want to enhance artists' lives. As much as being an opportunist for our artists, and this is me talking as a sort of business owner now or founder or whatever, is I think that same thing that I did with artists I've done with employees, team players at Bright, is recognising so we want when artists joined Bright, they may have joined as an illustrator, but then they became an author illustrator and we really encouraged them to write their own work. Then we encouraged them to retain the rights in their work. And then we developed those, you know, stories and books into properties mm-hmm. with our, you know, our employees, our agents is also encouraging them that if they have a specific skill or a vision like Arabella has with her literary background, and then we had authors coming to Bright why not represent them? Mm-hmm. You know, when you said, what does Bright do? So we do the author illustrated, then we do film and TV. And then from the film and TV, there is the merchandise and licensing side of the business. And then we have the design and advertising side of the business. Design and advertising doesn't fit in the flow, but that is a wonderful place for artists to find work mm-hmm. that does not cannibalize anything. It, it's such a complementary part of their work and for illustrators who are like well i don't know i mean that that doesn't sound like something i want to do let's just remember historically plenty of illustrators that we all now love and adore worked in all fields so perfect example of that is mary blair everybody loves mary Mm -hmm. blair leading disney animator of the Mm mid-century you know what else she was a children's book illustrator guess what else she did packaging for nabisco Mm -hmm. so Everybody loves Alice and Martin Provinson. They illustrated children's books, of course. Martin designed Tony the Tiger. So it's okay for illustrators to say, well, I want to be a children's book illustrator. You can also do these other things too. No, there's no rule oh, against absolutely. it. Absolutely. I, I do believe that artists that are busy and have lots of opportunities are confident. And if you're confident and you feel confident in your work and you're like, you've got opportunities you are less precious and less anxious about this fear. You don't have the fear of, where's my next job coming from? And it's a much lovelier place to be, to be like, I can choose what I want to, to, and I have the time to be developing new work rather than worried about where the work is coming from. So from all the years I've worked being an Asian, artists that are busy, are just more relaxed and if they're relaxed they're ha- it's as simple as if you are stressed or worried you will grip your pen your arm will be tighter your line will be slightly more static um Completely i just think thinking. artists do their i think they do their best work when they feel good and when they feel right 
so I, th I think having artists with lots of different opportunities is, is just good for their mental health and if it's good for they're in a good place they do great work so I think it's a it it feeds each other and they don't have to do it they can say no you know that's not for me and then right. plenty of artists do we would never you know say you've got to do or anything it's it's quite nice sometimes to say that's not for me it's i don't think wise to try to completely plan your career as an illustrator obviously you have interests and you want to get into certain fields fantastic be open you know, maybe you never, ever thought oh, in a million changed, years yeah. you'd illustrate a website for a pharmaceutical advertisement agency. Hell, Eric Carle, another great example. He did illustrations for advertisements. Yeah. Being an illustrator, you cannot say, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this. It just doesn't happen like exactly. that. It's there is this opportunity. Is this right for me? There's a, um, a very famous quote by Oscar Wilde if you know what you want to be you become it we are not nouns we are not artists or writers but we do things we write we draw we make things if you're creative you don't want to be imprisoned by your ambition to be like I want to do this and be fixated on it and actually miss the the kind of the natural opportunities that are kind of coming your way if you're so sort of blinkered on this is what I want to do you miss what is. Does that make sense? Absolutely. If you find value in this podcast, please consider supporting it as a patron. Your support will help me keep the podcast on its weekly schedule. Patrons receive perks, including a reusable 10% off discount code, access to dozens of patron-only episodes, opportunities to provide questions for guests, a soft enamel pin with our logo designed by me, and more. Become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash illustration D-E-P-T. And now, back to our conversation. So I wanted to turn our attention to patrons of this podcast. I asked them mm -hmm. to ask you questions. And they kind of go around, around the horn a little bit uh, in terms of theme. There's a lot here, but I don't know how many we'll we'll do. But let's let's try. Okay. The first one comes from Amy. She comes from two places apparently: Victoria, British Columbia, and Seattle, Washington. She says, "For submissions, you, as in Bright, requests mm -hmm. a PDF with a minimum of ten samples." This is a great mm -hmm. question. Is there a preference for a multi-page PDF, or would you prefer a one-page contact sheet? Because they get put up onto this Trello, probably, you know, one JPEG, one PDF, just one image per thing. Right. She also asks, when it comes to submitting picture books, is there any merit to sending a hard copy dummy or no. is the preference strictly email? I know the answer to this. Strictly. Yeah. 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 Email. Email. Yeah. Kara from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, asks, since you have an American and British presence, do you look specifically for illustrators whose style is internationally appealing? And if so, what does that look like? No, of course, every publisher would love to have a, a style that can be sold. You know, publishing is a global game. And so a book that can co-edition, say the French like it, the Italians like it, the English like it, the Americans like it, the Australians like it. But if your work is amazing for America and it will only sell in America, that is also absolutely fine. Or it's very British looking. So it's, it's we are a global agency. We work in all markets. But yes, we, uh, as an artist, you can work in all of them or you can just work in one. 
Jennifer from Detroit, Michigan asks, what elements do you look for in an illustrator's portfolio? This is a big question, I know. But she's, it, no, she, you know, she, she drills down a little bit to particularly in the YA and middle grade market. Personally, the thing that I look for more than anything is line and craft and someone that it sounds ridiculous, but someone that can really draw. So I want arms and legs in the right place. I, anything that looks slightly squiffy or just not quite anatomically correct really sort of would raise an eyebrow for me. That's not to say I like really realistic work. I love stylized work, but it needs to work. And consistent, mm -hmm. you know, work that is con consistent. And then I really want to see character. I really want to see a naive girl. I want to see a precocious boy. I want to see that character, animal, child. I want to be able to relate yeah. to them and be like, I know what they're thinking. I, uh, what I don't want is vacant, could be anyone. Right. One of the things that we saw coming up, which is quite interesting at Bologna and at the London Book Fair more so, was this authenticity of the illustrator. Sort of 10 years ago, when last time I saw you, Instagram was just about, you know, people had to have, there was like, oh, we've got to have a presence. And I met an artist recently. She was like, I hate Instagram. I think it's really awful that I have to do this. And whether I agree with you or I don't agree with you, I could sit and debate this or whatever, but it does matter. And if you can have an Instagram, it, it's not going to harm you to right. be, be doing it. But I feel like after I went to London Book Fair, it's gone a step further. It's this authenticity of who you are as an illustrator. And I part of me thinks this is really unfair. Like, before, there was a lot of sort of illustrators that were being asked to do, you know, book launches and creative events and book festivals and tours. And that suited some artists, you know, they, they couldn't get in their sort of dinosaur outfit as, as quick as possible. And others were, were, you know, frankly horrified that they had to, you know, they were not sort of people they just didn't want to do that and it was sure. it felt sort of there was artists that probably weren't as good as other artists but because they were really up for the promotion they were getting their books were selling more and if their books were selling more there, there was a second uh, book deal and it did feel I've sort of like that time and again like this, yep. yeah and it's like wow as an artist you've not got to just illustrate you've you've got to be this sort of whole package and oh yeah Mm -hmm. And I think that's died, you know, since COVID, that has died down a little bit. You know, there isn't, but I, you know, we're seeing book festivals popping up. But what came up in LBF that I was really sort of quite surprised with is they were, our clients were looking for an artist, but they wanted someone that had an affiliation with the subject matter as well as the style having that authentic link so if you are doing a book on recycling that you have some kind of presence on your instagram that you are really into recycling that that the whole thing is is sewn up whether that's good or negative for artists sharing a little bit more of yourself and what you're affiliated to so if you want to get into graphic novels you know, have on your Instagram that you love graphic novels or this is your, you know, this just a connection to it. So there's an authentic oh, yeah. link, basically. Right. Vicky, I'm glad to hear you say that. I often instruct illustrators to enhance their bios on their websites to say something about themselves as a human being. Who are you as a human? What mm -hmm. do you like to do? What are you interested in outside of drawing and painting? On the flip side of this, thinking of illustrators who, how do I describe this? Um, 
there are illustrators that I, I do talk to. They aren't neurotypical. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I don't know if publishing or if I don't know if anyone really thought about like, well, you have to do your talks and you have to visit schools and you have to put on the dinosaur costume. I mean, that's just what you do without mm-hmm. real any any regard for that artist's uh, mental health and what that artist was mm-hmm. physically and mentally capable of doing. Now, far more open to that and far more empathetic about what the artist can and can't do physically and mentally. So maybe that's why it's sort of died down. Mm-hmm. But my point here is with Instagram, with the like what is it what is it that you have to do outside of drawing and painting? Some artists just can't bring themselves to share anything about themselves personally on their bios. Maybe they can bring themselves to post on Instagram, but barely. And to post anything mm-hmm. about themselves is like completely out of the question. I was talking to someone yesterday who just happens to be bipolar. She has received some some good advice and some terrible advice in terms of like what is it that illustrators quote have to do to be successful. And it was like I you have to have a blog, you have to have a newsletter, you have to have an Instagram presence, you have to you know, reach out to other bloggers and you have to be part of a community and you have to do all of these things. And she said, I'm trying, but once I get all of that stuff done, the last thing I want to do is draw and paint. To which I said, well, obviously that's a problem. So what do you tell illustrators who feel like, crap, I have to do all these things and I just can't mentally, I just can't on Instagram. I can't have a newsletter. I can't have a blog. All I want to do is draw and paint. Then get a really good agent that's going to do all of that stuff for you. Um, at Brett. I, at Flamingo. Um, no, no, don't, don't. Yeah, yeah. at Flamingo. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would also say, what can you do rather than what can't you do? And I'd look at hours yeah. and time and your routine i'm I'm a big fan that you can do anything if you have a routine to do it so and you can build on habits so if you Agreed. say i'm going to on a monday between nine and ten always plan something and come rain or shine that's what you do is you plan and on a wednesday at one o'clock you do and it's these commitments that you make to yourself rather than you know we all put things in our diaries that are like I need to meet Giuseppe and do this podcast I need to meet Arabella I need to speak Uh to this client but I actually schedule time for me to do things I that I respect my time like I would a meeting with someone else because I think naturally we all I wouldn't cancel this appointment with you I wouldn't cancel my management meeting with other people but it's easy to cancel commitments to yourself so I book commitments to myself of what I can do and start small I think taking things down into a manageable what can you do so be like you know what I can post one piece of artwork a week and that's what I'm going to do and all through the week you might you'll do something or be like oh that can be my post for the week there you go So then when you go to do your post you've already thought about it you already know what it is all you need to do is is post it so change the narrative of what you can't do to what can you do start small and do it week in week out as a routine and you'll build on it and it feels good to build on things there's a book called atomic habits 
read that. Very good book. Speaking of what you can't do, Nancy from Vancouver asks, this is a good question, how concerned are you about the growing movement to ban books in the United States? Are you aware of agents, yourself included, censoring clients preemptively? I'm very concerned of any state, whether that be America or anywhere else in the world, banning books. I, the thing that I think is that publishers are probably the most progressive and liberal and they are so committed to a better future and there's nothing that would come out of a a respected publisher i think should ever be um banned or or censored i i would be Agreed. very surprised if ever, any publisher said oh well there's you know a a queer book that might not be sold in florida so let's now not do any books like that i i just right. I just don't. I just. I just don't think they would. Um, they'll probably print more. I'm concerned for society. Yeah. I'm not concerned for what the the industry is going to do. Martina from Bournemouth, UK, asks, "Can I resubmit my portfolio?" I assume it doesn't yes, say here, yes. but I assume we- that she's been re- passed or rejected. How long should I leave in between two submissions? It doesn't matter about how long. Sometimes we do reject and say, look, we really like this, but it's just not enough there or resubmit. If you have new work that's good and you think is something that is an improved submission, you don't need to wait six months. Just send it in. We would love to see it. Julia from Vancouver, Canada asks, throughout your career, what are some of the most significant changes that you've noticed when it comes to illustration and what are the ways we could prepare ourselves for the future of illustration? Yeah, I know the AI thing. I'm in a, involved in a lot of um, trade associations and committees yeah. and thought. Are you still a board member of AOI? No, I stepped down because I only have so, and I did nine years. So I think you can only do nine years. So I, I stepped down, okay. but right. I, I've set up a charity. I um, saw that. So I can do, yeah. So that's, rock it ahead. I've only got so much time to to, but that's that's a. a I'm really excited about that. But um, there are two things going on with AI. Generate there's generated AI, which is where a computer, an algorithm, text has generated a piece of art, and that I am totally against. Then you have artists using AI to enhance their practice, whether that's doing mood boards and um, sending over variations of ideas to a client so they can get the brief right, just as a tool, I'm totally for. And I think that um, as, a, as a tool that an artist is going to use, then I think that that is, in, you know, and I would encourage an artist to explore that without fear. I think that generated art which is where a publisher or a coder or a non-creative person is using text to generate art and that you know i have a huge issue with that there is so much that needs to be protected and explored and governed and and the, the the thing that's most frustrating is you would quite like to do those two things separately one then the other but because the shampoo is out of the bottle and it's one of those funny bottles you can't put it back in 
we have to work <laughs> with it as it is, which is right. on one hand, explore it whilst completely protecting, fighting, legislating, all, all in the same concurrently happening. And I think that's very hard to sort of be positively excited about the possibilities of it whilst also clawing back and fighting and, and, and feeling so angry. When I first saw it, I was, I was fuming. Like it, it generated a, a real, like just that is not fair. You've stripped right. art. I mean, it's just all a matter of, of wrong, but I think you have to be quite pragmatic to this is, you know, the, the two things are, are sitting at, at the same time. And I think mm -hmm. for me, what I want to see happen in the industry is generated art, which is text to artwork, cannot be copyrighted because a human hasn't generated it. So you can never yeah. copyright it. And if you can't copyright it, no publisher or professional commercial, it's, it's going to be very limited in its commercial use because someone else Bingo. could just copy it. Bingo. Um, yep. Whereas if you can copyright something that an artist has, it's a tool that they've used to enhance and they can copyright their own work and it's, they've enhanced it. So it's not just a total rip off of whatever it's, it's they've used it as a background or a color or as part of their process, then it needs to benefit the artist rather than just exclude the artist is right. sort of where I'm, I'm coming from. But I tell you the thing that I really think Giuseppe and I, and I don't know if I'm alone on this and I definitely have fights for this with other people. I believe in the human and I believe in the creative and I just, I just don't think that a computer is ever, in fact, I think if anything, AI is going to make original thought and creativity even more desirable oh. and this authenticity to mm -hmm. the creator because mm -hmm. all it's going to do is produce a load of artwork that all looks the same. It's exactly. not going to, you know, and it's the more work that is generated with it, it's just going to flood with average looking. Do you remember in the early days where, people, where Photoshop had those filters and everything yep. just looked a bit gross and filtered and digital yep. and everyone, no one has gone, oh, give me, I don't think I've ever had, I want it to look digital, ever. Mm -hmm. I, I, I am not fearful of it. I have such faith in how, how humans like to work, how clients like mm -hmm. to work, how great work is produced. People create great work in a synergy of people. It's a great editor. It's a great art director. It's a great author. It's a great text. It's a great marketing team. And it's the yep. synergy of humans working together that mm -hmm. I just don't think can be replaced by AI. And I, I just have such faith in that. Totally agree with you. I've had to talk several illustrators off the ledge over the past few months one person was literally crying about it and so i had to help her sort of through those very valid mind you feelings about what ai could or couldn't do and another illustrator questioning her entire career choice and so i had to talk to her about that so it, it's it's all of its i mean we're not saying you know oh don't be silly we're saying yeah, let's let's keep on top of this. Um, but I agree with you. I'm not I'm not fearful whatsoever. I I actually spoke to really interesting university um, in Chicago, and they are working on a very cool piece of technology to disrupt how they're trained on people's artwork. I had this 
fascinating hours chat with the guy. And one of the things that he said, which I would love to share with your listeners, just because if a lot of them are students and studying for illustration, as I really want to reassure them, is the one thing that I don't think people are quite aware of, that this is a machine, right? So it requires artwork to be put into it for it to be able to create the algorithms to spit stuff out. So when it all first came out where the horses were like funny arms and legs and things weren't, they didn't mm -hmm. fix that by going in and fixing the algorithm. They fixed that by just putting more pictures of horses in because there wasn't enough horses for it to be able to do its computerized, um, it's all maths basically, it's all probability. So it's all just right. numbers and maths of like, this is how many measurements between this leg and this blah, blah, blah. And, um, and that's why some, you, you put your, your type in and you get out an image and then you get another image. It's, every image is a unique image. Some will work, some won't work. But what he said is, is he said eventually, and it's probably in about 10 years time, it will just stop. It, it's not a forever thing. And as a human being, we're so used to forever and an infinity. This is not like the AI machine has been built and then it's just going to keep going. It will only keep going if you keep putting new artwork in it. And obviously it doesn't read AI artwork. So unless artists are continuing to put new styles into the AI machine, it will limit what the AI can produce. Mm -hmm. And one final note that I will say on that is someone else said this to me and I just thought you're so right is if I studied the history of art and I was talking to my peer group and we were saying, do you remember all the art that was being produced in 1840 and all what it looked like? It was all very realistic, Constable, Turner, um, you know, these great big Italian scenes of just photo realism. And then along yeah. came the photograph and it was like, oh, holy shit, well, we're all going to be, <laughs> be painting now. Why do I need to paint this? Because, you know, I can now have a photograph done. And it was that was then the birth of people like Van Gogh and Monet and the Impressionists. So I, I think good will. I just trust in the human. Yeah, to, I agree. We'll, we'll work it out. Speaking of new art, mm -hmm. Tom from Portland, Maine asks, what advice would you give to illustrators whose style has fallen out of fashion? Sadly, that does happen. And it was as a, my dad said it to me when I was, you know, he, my whole family work in sort of not in creative. And it, my dad was like, when you finish uni, most industries, you, you go in and you start a job and then you work your way up and you increase your earning as you, as you go up. And, and really, unless you have a massive career, something, pretty much you just go up a, a percentage increase and you, you're, you just get more senior. Whereas when you're an artist, you can come out of university and be literally at the top of your game. And then you're, you can go downhill as your work, you know, as, as trends right. change or other artists right. do the style that you do. So what was really exclusive and you were the only person doing it, lots of people do it. So it's, and I think that's really emotionally quite difficult for an artist to just this sort of, I've got to stay at the top or I've got to stay current. I think if an artist is not getting work because their style is as dated, the best thing you can do is emotionally accept that and look at why your work worked. So what, what, was, what was it about the style that worked? Was it, it was appealing or the characters were soft or it was 
can you know is there things that you can just keep the, the core of what your style is but evolve the palette is it the environments does the world look different and I would really embrace starting again right and one of the things that I've said to artists in the past when they're developing is put your ink in a different space on your desk change everything about your studio right. space to approach something differently do you know what I mean sure yeah if someone says that to me I would I would say well let's let's just for a minute let's just maybe for a few weeks get out of the comfort zone just like don't even worry about what your new style is going to be let's look at some artists that you may or may not feel inspired by. So we like take a look at a sort of a range of other artists, not contemporary. We look at the masters. Do you like this style? Do you like that direction? What about this? Oh, I like that. What about that? Do you like, so like, look at just like kind of hit the reset button, look back throughout history on who inspires you or what they do. Oh, I like that person's color. I like, you know, I like Leonard Weisgard's color. I like Mary Blair's texture. I like Quentin Blake's line. You know, just kind of look at a, just sit and reflect for a sec. Then try and fold that into, you know, do some master copies. Just kind of get out of your own way. Get out of your own way of art making. Create work how other people created work and see if that turns on a switch in your brain. And usually it does. Yeah, and I would also, I agree with all of that. It happens to the best of us. I don't know an artist that I have worked with that hasn't evolved their style, that their style has become tired. This is an opportunity to freshen up um, and it's exciting and don't feel like, oh, my, my, you know, it's all so tired or, oh, no one likes it anymore. I won't, I think that it's a mindset of this this is all part of this is part of the being an illustrator right. this is this happens to everyone as you know we we do have lots of illustrators listening in on this and um if there was only one takeaway that you'd hope illustrators would pick up from this conversation what would be one last thing that you want to say to them what would be that one takeaway from you to them hmm. the the takeaway that i would like I think is just really feel good about your work and if you enjoy your work and you're confident with your work it will be in your in your work it's a bit like what Roald Dahl said it's sort of like think happy thoughts and you'll have a beautiful face it's like just enjoy what you're doing and have because the more you enjoy it the more you'll do the more you fit you'll go on that upward spiral and you know count your blessings not your oh they didn't reply to me or this is hard you know it's look look for the good and it will find you to learn more about vicky and her agency visit thebrightagency.com this podcast is produced by the illustration department a global leader in online education for illustrators visit illustrationdept.com For class offerings, testimonials, the alumni showcase, the podcast show notes, our forum, the bookshop, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.